Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And we are talking atonement. We're sounding so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Been a long quarantine. Yeah. It has. Uh, So we are still working through systematic theology, too. And... I have been drinking so much coffee and I've been so tired and I don't know why. COVID-19. Probably. You're probably going to die. Uh, So, um, speaking of which, we're talking about salvation. And so we looked at the Old Testament and New Testament terms last time that spoke of salvation. And we didn't actually start talking about, you know, formally the doctrine itself. Um, But hopefully just from looking at those terms uh, and examining them, we're able to show that it's not only a very large topic, but also a nuanced one. And so today we're going to get into the doctrine itself and begin to develop it. And with that, we're going to begin with this very important doctrine of atonement. Uh, Now, this is a massive topic in its own right, uh, and we're not going to develop every aspect to this, but uh, we have done an episode on the various theories of atonement, and so we'll simply point you to that one. Uh, But today we're going to just intro this topic, essentially, and it's it's something that has a very rich Old Testament theology, and so you need to understand the Old Testament if you're to rightly understand what atonement actually is. And so we would say that in light of that, to properly understand what Jesus has accomplished on the cross when, you know, we say that he has atoned for our sin, uh, you have to rightly understand that Old Testament background. And so we're going to begin here by examining some of the Old Testament data, and then we'll look at the new. And like always, we start with our terms. Yes. Right? So the first one is uh, the Hebrew word for kafar. Um, it's used about 150 times, and, and it's actually one that gets discussed quite a bit um, because there's an equivalent Arabic root, which means to cover or conceal. And so, when I don't know, did you grow up with this understanding of atonement? That it means to cover? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was really driven into me when I was younger, okay. um, and that's why we're talking about it. Uh, because of that Arabic connection uh, on the strength of that, it's been supposed that the Hebrew word means to cover over the sins um, and therefore somehow pacify the deity or God by making an atonement. And so the Old Testament uh, ritual uh, symbolized a covering over a sin until it was dealt with, in fact, by the atonement of Christ. The problem is that there's almost no data that supports it at all. There's very little evidence. You're really just making a connection between the Arabic word, and that's very weak. Um, and the Hebrew root itself does not mean cover. So Yeah, or picking up on some kind of allusion to the Passover, where they yeah. spread the blood on the door. and Yeah. Um, but that's not the same thing. No, it's not. And, and yet it's something that and this is probably, let me just say it this way, this is probably the hardest part about doing theology is so often, 
or or expositional preaching, right? Because you deal with passages if you do it expositionally that just come up next, and but you're always preaching them within their context, and a lot of times you end up demolishing cherished texts as to how people think they. Uh, they're meant to be understood because that's not what the context is, is saying at all. Right. Same thing with good theology. You're trying to develop a good theology, but you run into these things that have been said so many times that people stumble over it and they can't, and they can't get past them. This is one of them, that atonement means to cover for sin, even though it's in reality, there's just the evidence isn't there. So let me read by uh, a, a bit out of Leviticus commentary by Wenham. Um, despite the terms frequent occurrence, its etymology and its meaning are uncertain. One possible derivation is from the Akkadian verb. I don't even know how to say that. Kapuru, to cleanse or to wipe. Um, Alternately, or alternatively, kafar, to make atonement, may be derived from the Hebrew word koper, uh, which means ransom price. Uh, koper is the money. Um, I lost my place. So koper is the money a man condemned to death can pay to escape the death penalty. Kafar, to make atonement, could then be literally translated to pay a ransom for one's life. Such an understanding is compatible with most of the passages that speak of sacrifices making atonement for someone. Through the animal's death and subsequent rituals, men are ransomed from the death that their sin and uncleanness, uncleanness merit. So that's again, comes from his commentary from Leviticus. Yeah. And then uh, he goes on though, he makes some helpful observations regarding these two words. And he says that the meaning can be en better understood as meaning to atone by offering a substitute. Uh, the great majority of the usages concern the priestly ritual of sprinkling of the sacrificial blood, therefore making an atonement for the worshiper. There are 49 instances of this usage in Leviticus alone and no other meaning there is witnessed. He goes on, the verb is always used in conjunction with the removal of sin or defilement, except for a few exceptions. It seems clear the word aptly illustrates the theology of reconciliation in the Old Testament. The life of the sacrificial animal specifically, symbolized by its blood, was required in exchange for the life of the worshiper. Sacrifice of animals in Old Testament theology was not merely an expression of thanks to the deity by cattle-raising people. It was the symbolic expression of innocent life given for guilty life. The symbolism is further clarified by the action of the worshiper in placing his hands on the head of the sacrifice and confessing his sins over the animal, which was then killed or sent out as an escape goat. Okay, so how are these terms used? There are going to be two major usages. The first is called the cultic usage, and the second is the non-cultic. Now, we hear the word cult, and we're like, ooh, that's yeah. bad. But it doesn't mean anything uh, bad. Uh, in theological writings, it just simply speaks to religious rituals or the way of worship. Uh, there are times in which the term for atonement is used, but it's not related to religion or religious practice. And you can see that uh, used in Exodus 30, verse 32, or Deuteronomy 32, 40. 
but there are also many cultic uses. By this, uh, by far, this is the most common way that the Old Testament will use it. Uh, a key passage would be Leviticus seventeen eleven, where it says, "For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement." And so, in Leviticus four, we see a ritual or cultic of atonement that is done in four steps. The very first one is for the priest. After that, then you have atonement for the congregation. Then you have one for the leader and then one for the ordinary Israelite. But what's important, though, is that through the manipulation of the blood of the animals, then sin can become forgiven. So you you, you spread the bling, you spread the blood, you put it on like the earlobe or the whatever, you sprinkle it. All of that is the ritual that we mean when we say the cultic usage. And so, as the writer of Hebrews says, and he's quoting Leviticus uh, chapter 17, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so, what we see when we're looking at the Old Testament uses of atonement is that God gave the people, both individually and nationally, a ritual that would repair the damage that was done when they sinned against him. Yeah. So, the question then becomes, what did the what did the Old Testament sacrifices actually do? Um, and there's a lot of discussion regarding the uh, efficacy of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Um, and so at issue uh, is whether the death of these animals actually produced forgiveness of sins or were they merely foreshadows of the true sacrifice of Christ. Right. And this right away, I bet you listeners are already answering the question uh, in their mind. That's just because there, this is something that's said over and over and over again, and we're going to kind of challenge it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, a common perspective, and this is a very common one, you'll see it, yeah. for instance, in uh, Wayne Grudem's writings. He says, then what about believers in the Old Testament? How could they come to God through Jesus, the mediator? The answer is that the work of Jesus as our mediator was foreshadowed by the sacrificial system and the offerings made by the priests in the temple. There was no saving merit inherent in the system of the sacrifices. Through the sacrificial system, believers were accepted by God only, but on the basis of the future work of Christ foreshadowed by that system. In other words, the whole of the Old Testament, again, is just pointing to Right. What Jesus would eventually accomplish. Right. And all those animals dying really did nothing. Uh, it's just a foreshadow, right? There's yeah. no, as he said, no saving merit inherent in them. Yeah. Uh, there's just, they're kind of promising something to come. Yeah. You want to read this other one? Sure. Uh, Hobart Freeman writes this. He says, uh, the second factor often overlooked in the Old Testament sacrifice is that the sacrifice was not to the Hebrews some type of crude, crude, temporary, and merely typical institution, meaning types or shadows, nor a substitute for that dispensation until better things were provided by revelation, but rather as will be shown, sacrifice was then the only sufficient means of remaining in harmonious relation to God. It was adequate for the period in which God intended it should serve. 
This is not the same as saying Levitical, Levitical sacrifice was equal with the sacrifice of Christ, nor that the blood of bulls and goats could, from God's side, take away sins. But it is recognizing the reality of the divine institution of Mosaic worship and looking as too often, uh, as too often Old Testament interpreters fail to do at the sacrifice from the viewpoint of the Hebrew in the Old Testament dispensation. Sacrifice to the pious Hebrew was not something unimportant or simply a perfunctory ritual, but it was an important element in his moral obedience to the revealed will of God. Sacrifice was by its very nature intensely personal, ethical, moral, and spiritual because it was intended to reflect the attitude of the heart and will toward God. So when when you examine the biblical data, there's no doubt that from the perspective then of the Old Testament, there was forgiveness found in these sacrifices. Um, there, there's no indication that they're just killing all these animals, looking forward to the time when the true sacrifice was accomplished. In other right. words, no Hebrew in their mind was saying, well, we're doing this because we know Jesus is coming. Yeah. Right? They actually understood in some way there's forgiveness here, yeah. whatever that means. Yeah, Yahweh has told us when we sin, we do this, and we find forgiveness. And it, But that's not just them thinking that, it's actually said. And so, do you want me or you to read the— Go for it. We do, these are just a couple passages. There's many more that could be offered. But um, Leviticus 19.22, it says, The priest shall also make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin, which he has committed. And the sin which he has committed will be forgiven him, not covered over or overlooked, but literally it will be forgiven. Uh, Or Numbers 15, 25, when the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of, of the sons of Israel, and they will be forgiven, for it was an error, and they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So again, with these passages and others like them are considered within their own context, there is really very little room to debate the efficacy of the sacrifices. Right. It's pretty explicit. Now, here's the problem, uh, yeah. and we'll put that in parentheses. Uh, the problem in the New Testament. as mean be- quotes. Um, what did I say? Parentheses. Ah. <laughs> yes, quotes. Um, as as <laughs> more coffee. Um, so as, as you begin to read through the, uh, the book of Hebrews, there's various passages that do, though, start to create uh, in the mind of the reader some legitimate questions regarding this Old Testament sacrificial system. So, for instance, in Hebrews 9, 9 through 14, uh, just hear these words. It says, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh— How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
Um, and then you have that passage in Hebrews 10. You want to read that one? Sure. Uh, 10 verses 1 through 4. He says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifice which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, could, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here that we don't have the time to to pull out, but there there's a temptation when you read passages like this um, to, to then read them back into the Old Testament and then make all the sacrifices and statements regarding the forgiveness of sin on both the national and individual level just simply go away. Yeah, so it says you're forgiven, but not, not really. In some way, not really. Yeah. Even though that's what it says, because you, you, you described it, they're applying a hermeneutic that yeah. they've decided is the way to do it. We're going to read the Old Testament backward into the, did I say Old Testament? We're going to read Testament, the New yeah. Testament backward into the old. Yeah. So it is, it comes down to theological interpretation versus what we'll just call an exegetical interpretation where you just stick with the text. And so we do have a, uh, here's our solution. Um, there, there's a lot of discussion on this. And uh, again, it's not really conducive for a short episode like no, this. No. So suffice it to say that, again, the interpreter of the Old Testament has to deal with those Old Testament phrases that you read like Leviticus 19.22, Numbers 15.25, and others, uh, in which there's those explicit statements that say that the sin which he has committed will be forgiven um, because of those sacrifices. Yeah. Um, so the question becomes then, what is meant by that phrase? Um, do we just, does it not mean what it means and it's some way spiritually fulfilled in Jesus or, so what's going on? Um, Suffice it to say, it would take a lot of work to just make it not say what it's clearly saying. Um, so we're just going to say both and. There's a both and understanding here. In one sense, the sin is forgiven. Why? Because that's what the text says. But in another sense, we would also say that the sin is not being taken away or fully cleansed. Um, in fact, nowhere in the Old Testament will you read of sin being removed or cleansed through a sacrificial system. That's just not mm -hmm. there. That's not the language that's used. Uh, the emphasis rather is always upon this idea of forgiveness. And so in the, what does that mean? Well, in the context of the old covenant, uh, the forgiveness that came about through, again, the sacrificial system allowed for the covenant between God and the nation to remain intact. Um, and so without forgiveness, the covenant's broken. Um, so when you're talking about forgiveness, understand it's a relational term. Um, it's not the idea of removing sin as much as it's maintaining or keeping relationship in this sense, sure. God's covenant. Um, and so again, nothing's been said about the removal of sin, um, nor is the violator being cleansed of their sin, but they've been forgiven, which means the relationship with God is still in some way intact. Until the next time you sin. Right. Which is why they had to keep doing it, right? Which over is and over. really what the point of Hebrews is getting at, right? Of look, 
there's only one sacrifice. It's already been done in Christ. We don't have to keep putting Christ back on the cross, nor do we have to go back to these other sacrifices to deal with our ongoing sin. All sin in our life has been dealt with by Christ, whereas the, the sins of the Old Testament or even prior to Christ in the New Testament, they had to be dealt with peace, in a piecemeal fashion. So yeah. how many millions of innocent animals died every year just to deal with the ongoing problem of sin? And it was constantly always before their eye that, uh, you know, Matt Miller is doing really good, and then he's not. And so out goes another lamb, you yeah, know, right. come on, buddy. Yeah. And you got to go to the temple, shed the blood. It's forgiven. Oh, that's good. Two months later, a week later, you're back there because you broke the law again. Um, and so constantly also what's being told to the people of Israel is this thing cannot resolve the heart issue. <coughs> it, it can't change that heart because right. I still keep producing the sin. And then you come to the New Testament, and that's a wonderful point that the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's dealt with. Yeah. It's gone. Um, you don't ever have to go back to anything else because you are fully forgiven uh, yeah. in every sense of the word. Yeah, that's a good term. And on the on the other side, just an application of this, when you're talking about the forgiveness piece, which is that relational part, this is why we're commanded in the New Testament to seek forgiveness mm -hmm. uh, from brothers and sisters. So like in a marriage relationship, for instance, your relationship in some sense is not intact sure. until you seek forgiveness, even though the sin in Christ has been cleansed. <laughs> yeah, well, forgiven in that fuller sense, right? Yeah. It's been removed and dealt with. But, but that covenantal friendship yeah, relational try, aspect. Try that on your wife if you don't uh, trust us. Just say, you know, babe, <laughs> the way I treat you was disrespectful and vile, but I'm not going to seek your forgiveness because it's all under the blood. Um, just see... <laughs> <laughs> and then snip and walk away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, but I, I also would hasten to say, then in about a month, don't go to your pastor and seek pre uh, marriage counseling because it's all your fault. Just stop doing that. Yeah, yeah you, you're. That's an excellent point, though. You, yeah. There is that relational that you're, and that's what you're even doing when you go to God and just say, "Please forgive me." You're yeah. not saying Christ's death was not sufficient. I need you to apply it again. Yeah, but there is that loss of fellowship and the joy of my salvation that I want to be restored. And so in that, I'm freely confessing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah. So all this brings up another issue. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, and we are not, I thought about this. I'm like, if we're going to do it, we should do its own episode, which I don't know if I want to. Um, but the controversy over whether atonement was expiatory or propitiatory. Those are $2 um, words each. Yeah, maybe five. Um, so let's just su suffice it to say here, expiation means what? It means to make amends for a violation of an offense. Propitiation includes the making of amends, but also involves a relational aspect where God is appeased and his wrath is averted. Uh, we're just going to say the best way to understand it or a better way to understand it is with the second view, yeah. the propitiatory view. Um, you know, God's wrath is present when a person sins. Uh, and so it's through atonement that it's appeased. appeased. And so God's not merely fixing the sin, uh, but he's also restoring that relational aspect as well. Which gets back into that forgiveness thing, right? Yeah. Uh, but understand if you're reading theology, you might come to some section in the theology you're reading that wants to go on and on about this expiation, propitiation. And at some point you start to wonder, 
you know, what is going on? Or am I even saved? Because I didn't know that was an issue. Yeah. Well, it is a theological issue. And one thing that theologians love to do is debate. Bicker. Yeah. yeah. There is, there's an excellent book though, if you're a theology kind of nerd person and you feel like it, um, Leon Morris is the apostolic preaching of the cross. Yeah. He's got a shorter version of that. That's horrid. You want that one. You want the apostolic. <laughs> no, I, I remember I bought his abridged version. Okay. And, and they, they I was it? like, I was not impressed. Okay. <laughs> and turns and I brought it up to my theology professor and he just started ranting. I'm like, sorry, man. <laughs> He's like, I told you to buy the apostolic preaching. Uh, how, what's the title? Apostolic preaching of the cross. Yeah. yeah. That's the one that's, that's extremely well done <clears throat> on that whole nature of the atonement. And it was a big debate. Big debate. Then it's when you get to First John two two, they translate, and he has been a propitiation for our sins. That's where the debate was. Mm-hmm. Do we translate this as expiation or propitiation? And there's a reason for the debate, but the book fleshes it out, and yeah. it's, it's it's very helpful, but uh, it's higher level. There so. are two that book and another one, uh, John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Yeah. If if they were to if people were saying, what are the best books on salvation? Those two books. But understand that even though the one by Murray's small, um, it's dense. Yeah. Um, this guy packs a punch in, yeah. in that. But if you, if you read both of those carefully, you're going to be light years ahead of most people on it. Now, there's a, many other excellent books, um, but those two would be just great yeah, ones. Yeah. Um, so, with that, let's go into the New Testament and deal with the atonement. Uh, so the word atonement is not actually found in the New Testament, so we're all done here. Uh, no, uh, but rather it's more the concept that we see. But, yeah. but that is important for all the amount of time that we talk about definite atonement or um, limited atonement. It's actually a term that's not used in the New Testament. And so it creates a bit of a challenge because it requires a person to consider the many different word groups that are going to be used to define and to express the idea of the atonement, right? So you want to start? <laughs> Which is apparently what we do. Yeah. <laughs> just, we're just definers of terms. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> now watch, we're going to have people then denounce us that we're wrangling over words. Like yeah. Paul right. denounces. Or what, uh, yeah. Uh, or the <laughs> yeah, pull out Carson's, uh, what is it? His exegetical fallacies. Yes. Yeah. You and your root fallacies. <laughs> then just turn us off. Uh, okay, so. Don't. Let's <laughs> like, share, <laughs> and tell all your friends. All your friend. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, okay. Uh, that's so true. The, the, the first one is uh, commercial, commercial terms. Um, so. The agarazzo word group, uh, the basic meaning with these words is to, the idea of purchasing or buying back in a marketplace. Yeah, it's got the word agora in it. Yeah, right? exactly. And if you know what the agora is, it's the marketplace just below Mars Hill where Paul preached his famous sermon in Acts 17, and we walked through it. Yeah. and I may yeah. or may not have purloined a <laughs> artifact from the ground. Shh, they're coming. They're going to come for you. May or may not have. <laughs> That's true. Well, you just got global entry. Let's not. <laughs> That's true. Let's not give them reason to <laughs> snatch that from me. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so yeah, this is the verbalized form of that agorazo. Um, so it's the idea of buying, purchasing, and there is a soteriological or uh, salvific usage 
to this term. Uh, it's the idea of purchasing out of sin or to redeem back. Sometimes it can refer even to the purchase in a slave market. Uh, examples of this term, 1 Corinthians 6.20, Galatians 3.13. Uh, here's one in Revelation 5.9, uh, when John says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to open the book and to break its seals. For you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so that's the term there, the buying back. And just by the way, the, there's a preposition attached to it here, um, ek. So it'd be like an ek agarazo, I guess. And, and with that, though, there, there's this aspect of election, uh, which we're yeah. going to get into next time. Because the purchase here is extracting out from, which is the preposition right. ek, from a, a mass of humanity there. So there is an electing, uh, you know, concept to the term. Yeah. There. Okay. Then lutrao. Uh, this is, again, another commercial term. Uh, but this one is interesting because it's explicitly a slave market term. Uh, and it speaks of being purchased out of that condition and position. Uh, so the meaning is to be redeemed or to be set free. And we won't read these. We'll just mention them. Uh, Matthew 20, 28, or Romans 3, 24, or 1 Corinthians one thirty, And we'll have show notes for this. Yeah. So yep. we'll have all of this for you to look at. But the, the thing there is that we have these these various words that come from lutrao, and it just simply means being purchased or redeemed out of this state of slavery. Yeah, you're now owned. Um, then we come to a series of, uh, uh, or just we have an appeasement term. Um, so here you have a hilasmos, or uh, the verbal form hiliaskamai. Uh, this is that First John 2, 2, the whole expiation, mm -hmm. propitiation debate. Uh, Freiburg's lexicon shows the basic meaning here to be uh, one of two things. One, it shows kindness and compassion toward one who does not deserve it, uh, to have mercy on them, to pardon or forgive. Uh, or second, to bring about a reconciliation, um, make, make an acceptable, um, making a person acceptable, providing for their forgiveness, but the focus there being on reconciliation. The, 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 it's a relational term again. Okay, and then, so we have the commercial terms, yeah. then you have the appeasement term, and then we come into another one, which uh, is the changed relationship set of terms. And so this comes out of the Alasso uh, word group. Um, there are four forms that this word takes, and each of them adds a prepositional prefix. So the first one adds the word kata, which carries the idea of restoring relationships between individuals or between God and man. It's to reconcile or to change from enmity to friendship. And this term will often be in the passive voice, meaning that we have been reconciled to God. Uh, it's God who is the one who's doing the reconciling. You're not reconciling yourself to him, which is for some people like, so what? But actually that's a huge thing. We're, we're estranged, we're his enemies, but yeah. God himself makes us his friend and his child. Yes. It's kind yeah. of a cool thing. Yeah. Uh, so that's um, Catalasso. So then the next one would be Catalagay. And uh, here it's literally to exchange or profit from exchange. Um, figuratively in the New Testament, it'll be used to speak of reestablishing personal relations in the sense of though changing from enmity to friendship. Um, and so examples for that would be Romans 5.11, 
2 Corinthians 5.18. Is the other an apokatalasso? Yeah. Really? Yeah, apokatalasso. Well, well, and then parentheses says apo and then alasso. That's why I was wondering. Oh, uh, yeah, there's two two prepositions. Two prepositions. Apa and kata. Okay. Wow. Of course, I like prepositions, so why not stick two together? (laughs) 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 Anyhow, uh, to strictly, this one is to strictly transfer from one state to another. Uh, So it speaks of broken interpersonal relations that have been restored. Again, it's getting to that idea of enmity into favor. So Colossians one twenty or Ephesians two sixteen. Yeah. And then you have uh dia lasso, uh preposition dia. Now this one is dealing with uh, a mutual hostility and changing from enmity to friendship. Um now this one is only used in the passive voice in the New Testament. And so it's this idea of being made uh, to be reconciled to God or to be made to be at peace with someone. Again, with this one, God is the active person in this relationship. And so what he's doing is he's taking two people who are at odds with each other, the sinner who hates God and God who's angry with the sinner, and then flips that relationship to where they both now love one another. So, if you just put those all together, you got, again, a lovely picture of how salvation works. We're, we're um, in this mass of humanity, and out of that mass of sinners, he draws us or chooses us. And not only that, but then he also um, purchases as slaves. So picture now that mass yeah. of humanity— and they're all enslaved, and we've been freed. So that's a really neat one. But then along with that, um, he, he takes the idea of showing great compassion and pardon to us, uh, which is that appeasement term. And then along with that, he changes our relationship. So we were once at enmity with him. We were his enemy. We were his foe. We were only fit for destruction. And he, through his grace, makes us now favored ones and and that's it's it's that kind of stuff that when you let it kind of wash over you your heart just gets happy (laughs) (laughs) yeah um yeah uh it's very and all that's built into the atonement yeah right that's what's actually happening um and so we would say here just in in concluding points that how you know when you consider all these terms and how they're being used throughout the old test uh and new testament you find that they're all being built upon this this Old mm-hmm. Testament sacrificial system. It is pointing to something. Um, and so it, it's an important study because it helps pave the way then for a proper view of the atonement, of what actually took place on the cross of Christ. Now, we did an episode already on the various theories of atonement of what actually happened. And so instead of going through that again, we're simply going to say, go back and listen to that if you're interested. Um, but our basic conclusion is that the best theory of atonement is something known as penal substitutionary atonement. The idea of Christ paid our penalty penal and he did it in our place, substitution. Uh, by far, this is how the Old Testament sacrificial system functioned. Um, that's And therefore that's what it's it's pointing to. Um, and so again, while, while the Old Testament sacrifices didn't necessarily remove the sin, it did provide that sense of forgiveness, which allowed for the covenant to remain intact between God and his people. In the New Testament, of course, Jesus accomplishes that in an eternal sense, where not only is forgiveness provided, but also now the removal of sin, you've been washed, um, made clean. Um, And that, of course, is gonna be now fully realized 
in the new heavens and the new earth. And now, the penal substitutionary theory is the best one. I mean, the vast, vast, vast majority of the texts yeah. deal with that. But like all things with theology, <laughs> we like to try to say, well, it's only this or only that. And that's not really good. Um, it does create for good denominations, but <laughs> <laughs> that it, it does, yeah. but not good theology. Uh, and so there's other aspects to some of the other theories that we discuss in that podcast on the theories of atonement that also hold out as well. So you have Christus Victor, uh, which is the idea of Christ being victorious over the evil powers and forces like Colossians 1.13. But there's also aspect of God being satisfied in the death of Christ, uh, or even Irenaeus's recapitulation theory. There's aspect there that we can see aspects right. within it uh, that that there's passages is like okay, I can see that. There's that, but it's not the predominant one. Yeah. The predominant one is the penal substitution. So the main way to understand the atonement is that penal substitutionary atonement. There are many implications to it, and we've already fleshed that out in that earliest episode, so we would really encourage you to check it out. Yeah. So next time, we'll start talking about the motive and the method of salvation, uh, as well as start our discussion on how salvation is functionally worked out, um, beginning, of course, with that whole non-controversial topic of election. <laughs> yes. Uh, Simple, so, easy, easy. <laughs> so until then, um, make sure to tune in, join this conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the atonement. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and tell all your friends. Mm -hmm.